Blog Talk Radio. Ah, cats. Jump back and dust off your Cadillac. You're listening to Respect for Life with your host, Brother Leroy, on the Keys Network. Blog Talk Radio, baby. Act like you already knew. Ow! This is the Keys 107 Network. I'm Brother Leroy, thankful to the Most High for blessing us with another day on this good earth, another day to do some good deeds for ourselves and our friends and relatives and our community and for humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, the program Respect for Life slash the Communicators has the purpose of setting up a classroom environment. That means we talk to the guests and allow you to join in on the conversation. That way there's more brain power executing than just my little brain on this side. The telephone number to call in on is 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618, and hold off calls for about 15, 20 minutes until we can get the interview set up so that the information will be flowing. Our guest this evening is Attorney Alton Maddox of New York City. He's in Mississippi, where he'll be giving us an update on the election campaign of Chokwe Lumumba, Attorney Chokwe Lumumba, who is running for the seat of mayor. And uh, if he's blessed, God sees fit, he'll be the first black mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, to our understanding. Once again, this program is dedicated to giving information, and information that you would not normally get elsewhere, at least from a black talk show. And we advise all of you to support black media, whether it's a newspaper or magazine that you can, you know, relate to, whether it's a radio show, whether it's a blog talk show or a TV show that you can relate to. There's a lot of stuff that's going under the guise of that is, you know, just just completely outside the arena of intelligence. But uh, for our sake, what we're asking you to do is support black media and also begin to spend dollars with your black businesses and select some businesses that are supportive, well, that that are run by black folks and begin to spend dollars with them. The statistics state that 50 cents of the dollar in black hands is spent on black businesses, only 50 cents, 50 cents out of the dollars we get into our hands, only 50 cents is spent with black businesses. So if you increase that by a dollar, by $2, and you have people in your family be conscious of that, then you're making a big dent 
in uh, the the lack of support of black businesses by black folks. If we have uh, Attorney Alton Maddox on the line, please uh, let me know. Okay, we don't have him there yet, but we're reaching out for him. And uh, you want to also note, ladies and gentlemen, that Minister Louis Farrakhan is doing a 52-week speaking series on NOI.org, www.NOI.org, and he's dealing with anti-Semitism, who are the Semites and who really is anti-Semitic. And that's the series, the time and what must be done. You go to the website, www.noi.org, and you click on the time and what must be done. You can also catch up with it by way of DVDs that are sold by way of the the Internet location of NOI.org, or you can get the Final Call newspaper and follow the transcript, the complete transcription of his presentations, and that's the documentation of what he is actually saying, and you can analyze it, you can debate it, you can challenge it, but it's right there in front of you. Once again, this is the Keys 107 Network, and I'm hoping that we have attorney automatics. Do we have him yet? Uh, my engineer, let me know whether I'm coming through. Engineer, Brother Anthony? Yes, uh, Brother Leroy, okay. we have everything set up and ready to go. Bring the host okay. in when you feel free. Okay, if you have attorney automatics, just let him come right on in. And uh, we'll begin our interview, which uh, goes to about uh, 8 o'clock New York time, Eastern time. Yes. Attorney Altimatis, God bless you. Thank you for joining us on the Keys 107 Network. Thank you very much, Brother Leroy. Brother Alton, uh, we would, you know, we want to discuss some legal things as it relates to New York, but most importantly, the information that you might share with us from Mississippi is not going to wind up in the Daily News or the Post or the Chicago Tribune or the Los Angeles Times tomorrow. So if you give us whatever news you can about Chokwe Lumumba's campaign to become mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, we'd appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. And really, uh, this campaign should be of particular interest uh, to our community. Uh, but more importantly, it should be of particular interest uh, to everybody uh, in the United States uh, in terms of, uh, of where Mississippi is now and the fact that uh, uh, Chukwe Lumumba, uh, who uh, isn't by no stretch of the imagination uh, attached to the establishment, uh is about uh, to do something in the name of black people. And I think that uh, what is important to all of us uh, in this country is that uh, our best example of using politics uh, to achieve some things that we want is through the uh, campaign of Tukwe Lumumba. And that is why uh, I wanted to be here uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, 
uh, at least to be here uh, in its found days uh, to see how the campaign was uh, uh, setting up uh, and also to be able to uh, to be present to record uh, a historic moment. The reality is that most people do expect uh, Chuck Wayla Moomin to win. Uh, that wouldn't have been the case some time ago, but they certainly expect that now. Uh, he seemed to particularly uh, have uh, broad-based support uh, in our community. And I think that the one thing that uh, people around the world should take note of and something that the people of Jackson, Mississippi have done is that they have been able to actually uh, decide uh, who is best to represent their best interests uh, by the level of attack uh, by whites. And so in the case of Chuckway, uh, because there were white resistance, uh, black people interpret that as signs of uh, that being uh, a person that we really want to represent us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I haven't seen this really uh, in the same vein in New York uh, because it seems as though uh, we are impressed with uh, those people who seem to, to be able to get along with white folks uh, and to uh, go along with white folks and that we think that that is a sign of progress by putting those type of people uh, in office. Uh, so we are witnessing something quite different uh, here in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, Brother Alton, when you indicate broad-based support within the black community, that means the, and I, I don't deal in class because mm-hmm. that that is self-delusional in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the people we deal with deal in class. Um, mm-hmm. That means the professional black people, the working uh, blue-collar black person, and those who are. Uh, sub uh, working wage individuals uh, you find components of each of those groups who can see themselves voting for Chokwe Lumumba is that what you're sharing with us yeah that that, that is correct uh, and it seems as though that there were other uh, blacks uh, in the race from the beginning and some of those blacks uh, may have been uh, respected in the community, but in the end, uh, black people began to gauge what was best for them uh, by the level of white resistance, mm-hmm. and uh, and they saw uh, Chuck Way Lumumba is as representing the best of those uh, who would move forward against white resistance. Uh, mm-hmm. To achieve the mission of our community, what is what is the um, the the condition of of black people in Jack in and around Jackson, Mississippi, based on your observation? Uh, is there employment in the area? I know that some of the automotive companies like Toyota mm-hmm. and others have moved into the southern areas and um, been able to provide uh, income generating jobs, but what have you seen, and and compare that with what you see in New York? Well, one, uh, I, I would say that Jackson, Mississippi, and Mississippi itself uh, has not uh, been as competitive 
in seeking uh, employment from uh, foreign industries as South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. Uh, because in each of those three states, for example, uh, the automobile industry have taken note and have established plants uh, in those states, and uh, that seems to be having some benefit uh, to the black community. Uh, that type of a record does not seem to be evident yet uh, in Mississippi. Uh, secondly, uh, I think what has really roused people up here in Jackson is the fact that they are not also able to get uh, benefits uh, from their local treasuries uh, mm. in the sense that mm. uh, a, they are disproportionately putting a lot of money in the coffers, public coffers, and they are disproportionately getting shortchanged by doing so, and that seems to be a real issue uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, especially when you consider the fact that until now, uh, you know, the whites have pretty much controlled things, even though uh, it has been by white minority rule. Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that I, I try to convince people of in our own community here in New York, there's a danger to white minority rule because Jackson, Mississippi is 80% black. Uh, and what has happened is that only 10% of the uh, investments have gone to the black community. So while the black community is putting all the money in, they're getting very uh, little money out. Ooh. And so uh, the people here, uh, given the fact that, you know, industry is not flourishing here like it is in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and all of that, and that you have to rely on your own base, uh, people really see Chuckway Lumumba as the best opportunity that they have in getting a fair share of the money that they put into the public coffers. And so that is a real big issue uh in this community, and one in which uh, a lot of people expect Chuckway to address. And, and specifically, what are the major points of the campaign that he has run in terms of what he says he will change, he will do? Well, I think, one, let's start with uh, his slogan. And uh, it, it seems as though uh, this may not really... Uh, uh, alerted white people because they may not be alert away of our history. And so sometimes we can use terminology of our revered ancestors uh, that white people don't really get uh, mm -hmm. because they have dismissed our history. Uh, but his, uh, his, his, his motto is one city, one aim, one destiny. Mm. Now, that's pretty much an offshoot of Marcus Garvey. But it has not been a campaign issue because apparently uh, most of the whites and maybe a lot of the blacks are not aware of Mr. Garvey or what he was trying to promote. Amen. Well, you know, so, let, let, Alton, anything that benefits black people is going to benefit Caucasians. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm saying that from the standpoint of if you improve those at the bottom, those who think they've been above those, and the only ones who who are not benefiting. This is you, you know this is you know you, you can say hey Leroy I like what you say but it ain't true. The the ones who definitely don't benefit are the small percent, the three or five or seven percent who have been living off of all the masses. And if you increase the the welfare, I'm not talking about welfare payments, but the living environments of those at the bottom, you begin to have a flourishing of talents and the gifts of those people who have been basically shunted to the side. Um, you're, you're, so I'm tying that in with with the Garvey point, um, you know, the, his mission, you know, one people, one, one destiny. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Well, and, and, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, I was uh, at uh, breakfast this morning uh, at the hotel, and, you know, I was going back uh, to this 1960s uh, in Mississippi, and that's when I first started coming to Mississippi uh, in the 1960s. And... um, and then uh, the same thing is true of Alabama. And back then you had the Ross Barnett's of the world, the George Wallace's of the world, uh, and they were preaching essentially fire and brimstone, and they had the races uh, rigidly integrated, not even to the extent of social uh, integration, but just integ- segregation throughout uh, in, in all levels. And I and I and I and I noticed the white people uh, that were working in the hotel this morning. There were a lot of blacks who were working there also today, uh, who were there. But I just noticed the real courtesy mm-hmm. uh, and civility of those whites. Mm-hmm. You know, to the extent that it just it didn't seem painful for them mm-hmm. to be as courteous. Mm-hmm. And as civil as they were, mm-hmm. and and I thought I said, well, you know, this could have happened fifty years ago, mm-hmm. or this could have happened a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. you know, or this could have happened maybe a hundred fifty years ago, <laughs> and you know, why were all these people lynched, and why were there terrorism and the Klan running rampant, and all of that, uh, when everybody understood what they wanted to do and what they were going to try to do. And why couldn't this have happened 150 years ago? Mm-hmm. And so, and I say that to say that if you look at the South today, uh, you know, you look at the transportation system and highway system and and all of that. Uh, it is no doubt uh, that it is a different South than it was 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you you'd be somewhat hard pressed now to see this as a different region than the other regions of the country, as you could have easily seen 60 or 70 years ago. And and so you ask yourself, I mean, what was the whole point? Uh, if these people can, you know, easily uh, become courteous and kind, and I'm not saying they're all that way because they're not, and I'm not saying there's no racism 
uh, that's running rampant in Mississippi because there is uh, rampant racism in, in many levels uh, of life in Mississippi. But on the other hand, it shows you that there's a large segment of the population uh, that is at least willing to meet people halfway on many issues. Mm-hmm. And certainly they're willing to meet people halfway on the issue of just being courteous and civil. And, you know, and not seeing the overt white supremacy right. that we saw, you know, 60 years ago. Right. You know, where people made a statement uh, every time they came out of the woodwork to let you know who they really were uh, before they did anything. And they also wanted to find out that you know who they really were before they did anything uh, as well. And so, you know, that's a very interesting point that you're making uh, about, you know, uh, what is happening now and why it was necessary to go through 150 years of the KKK in order for us to get here where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Keys 107 Network. Our guest online is Attorney Automatics of New York City, and he is an individual who has been a icon, a a good icon in terms of other lawyers seeing his tactics in court, borrowing his tactics, although not publicizing the fact that they got something from him that uh, they had to learn in law school, tactic, technique, pursuit of law. And he's talking and sharing with us his observations in Jackson, Mississippi, where Attorney Chokwe Lumumba is running for mayor. Now, one of the things that has happened in in several black uh, elections uh, for Congress in particular and in other lesser, lesser positions in recent history has been strange money coming in from out of state into a local election campaign. And the, the most recent one was the money that poured in against Charles Barron in Brooklyn uh, in that in that uh, congressional race, where where I think the the guy who ran against him may have had two million or some odd dollars left over in the campaign chest uh-huh. for that small that small uh, district. But the point is, uh, what has Chokwe indicated in terms of what I call strange money, money coming in from the outside to uh, bolster the opposition uh, to him in that race? Well, I think that at this stage, uh, most of that has become moot uh, because I think that uh, the choice of candidates uh, from the white community uh, were not, uh, necessarily up to the abilities of Chuck Way himself. Okay. And and so and what they did here, they held uh, some debates that they televised, uh, and it seemed as though uh, Chuck Way really uh, dusted the floor with uh, mm. all of his opposition. Beautiful. Uh, and that you know it was very clear uh, from even some of his you know worst critics. Uh, that he was, you know, well qualified uh, to manage uh, the uh, city of Jackson. And it was actually from those debates 
uh, the Chuckway stock really began to rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in the sense that he really began to uh, run over and uh, distance himself from the rest of the field uh, mm-hmm. as a result of that of those debates, and I think that that has really pretty much made the issue of finances uh, academic uh, because mm-hmm. uh, you know for those you know who don't know Chuck Way uh, is a very skillful. Uh, trial litigator, mm-hmm. and he has been involved in some of the more controversial cases uh, in this country, and so he has definitely developed skills of argument, you know, and skills of debate, and he's also taken very uh, profound and consistent positions uh, on issues that relate uh, to black people, and so. Uh, all of that, I think, in his case, just really uh, distanced himself from the field uh, and uh, just really made it uh, uh, inevitable uh, that, uh, that he was absolutely the best candidate of all of those who was in the race, even though the Republican Party put a lot of money in, in candidates as well. Uh, but I think Chuck Wade just became too big a force and, and just became too knowledgeable about the issues. Uh, for anybody to really challenge him in any kind of successful way. I I feel that based on my observations of uh black men and black women who run for office in New York City mm-hmm. that black people may not verbalize it, but they're not particularly turned on by accommodationist positions taken by black men in particular when they're in debates. Mm-hmm. When black men stand up and speak and and take a principled position, it may not even relate to what my position is, but if they stand up and, and you know that they're basing this on some fact as opposed to something mm-hmm. that was paid for them to say, you can mm-hmm. appreciate that. But but even if even if a black person is a Negro, they will appreciate a black man and woman standing up. And that's the best mm-hmm. way I can, I can phrase it. And I see Chokwe as being that kind of individual who would attract that kind of admiration and empathy from blacks in all categories of, of income and uh, gender in, in Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah, and I think that is true because, uh, you know, I think that one, Chokwe's background and experience you know, really uh, align himself with the working class. And then on the other hand, even though we're trying to stay away from the class issue, uh, because of the fact that he's a a well-thought-of lawyer, you know, that the professional class, you know, see a lot in him as well. And I think that that's what has, has really come across because, you know, he feels very comfortable uh, in the uh, grassroots community, you know, and then he also feels equally as comfortable with other people, you know, who have escaped that community, so to speak. <laughs> as you say, so to speak, you know, <laughs> the, the so to speak comes up at the moment of truth, man. <laughs> when you're driving somewhere, you're driving into your gated community, and they're going to stop you and flashlights be on, get out the car. 
What's the right. ice cream? You know, and it's all pretense because they don't like the fact that you're driving a particular car with leather leather seats. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest online is Attorney Alton Maddox. This is the Keys 107 Network, coming to you by way of Blog Talk Radio. I'm Brother Leroy, your host on Respectful Life and the Communicators. We have some announcements that are right keyed up for you to listen to and for your support. The advertisers who are on the Keys 107 Network keep this program going, and we want to invite you to spend your dollars with your black businesses. Stay tuned. And when we come back, you'll have the opportunity of calling in 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618. Hit 1 on your telephone keypad. That lets our engineer know that you have a question for Altimatics, whether it relates to Mississippi or New York City current events. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC, is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet. Now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. Fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cut shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, Ladies and gentlemen, we're black with you, and this is Keys 107 Network. I'm Brother Leroy, along with Attorney Alton Maddox. You are welcome to call in and ask a question. We're going to current events in New York City, and one major story in Brooklyn is the following. This is taken from the headline in Sunday, May 12th, New York Times newspapers. The front page says, Review of 50 Brooklyn Murder Cases Ordered. Disputed confessions and doubts about a detective. Detective, former detective or retired Brooklyn detective Louis Scarcella relied on a crack cocaine addict as a crucial witness in several homicide cases. Now, uh, this up to this point, this guy was a hero. And naturally, when you have uh, some 50... Brooklyn murder cases solved uh, uh, by you on the New York City Police Department. You get all kinds of promotions uh, that you and I would never know about, bonuses and all this other kind of stuff. 
And um, the question is, although this is not being re- it's not been resolved yet, there are stories that appear are appearing in the daily press. Most recently, yesterday's daily news of an individual, a black guy who's been in jail since he was 17. I think he's he's 30. 35 or something like that right now in 18 years. He says he's innocent of a murder of a little girl. He said he was beat up by the guy forced to confess. Well, you know, anybody can say that. But uh, his is one of the cases being reviewed. Brother Alton, what experience have you had in terms of cases with, that have come to your attention that have subsequently, uh, you know, whether it was your case or one that you studied on, where the individual was subsequently freed because of the the prosecution or the detectives uh, using tactics that wanted up ended up with a innocent person being convicted of a crime they didn't commit. Well, you know, and I want everybody to uh, pay attention to what I'm saying because I'm not engaging in hyperbole, and I'm not trying to. Uh, Outdo the next person, uh, and and what uh, I have concluded is based on a a modus operandi uh, that exists uh, in the criminal justice system, and I want to start with a premise that I didn't make, but that was made by a blue ribbon commission. Now, the definition itself, blue ribbon commission, commission, basically means white people who are influential and who are people of great means. So when you hear the term blue ribbon commission, uh, that's not a commission made of people from the hood. Uh, that is a commission made of a people uh, from uh, Scarsdale's and, and places in New Jersey and Connecticut uh, and where they really don't come in contact with our people uh, on a regular basis. And this is what they said. So, you know, when you get ready to argue things, you got a lot of black people, they want to argue things that you said or they think you said. I don't say anything. I just say what other people say. Mm-hmm. So they argue with that. Uh, and in 1991, uh, a Blue Ribbon Commission that had been set up by the New York Court of Appeals to deal with the issue of whether there was racism in New York's criminal justice system found in 1991 that New York's criminal justice system was, quote, infested with racism, close quote. And they gave a number of proofs uh, to show that this conclusion uh, was inevitable. Uh, that's them. I don't, don't quarrel with that because I found the same thing. Uh, and what I found is is that in every case, every case, uh, the police and the district attorney's office, among others, including judges, go overboard in trying to find guilt 
on behalf of a black defendant. They go overboard. And a very skilled trial lawyer uh, who senses that uh, can use that to the advantage of the defendant. Now, unfortunately, there are not enough people who, who do that. You know, but for those of us who do, we see sometimes a very solid case that the prosecution had. But racism sabotaged the case because it seems as though there are no regulators on racism and people don't know when enough is enough. And sometimes you have these situations where people add more to it than is necessary in order to sink somebody and mm. that this excess uh, racism uh, that exists can be used in reverse to liberate the very person that was it was intended to sink in the first place. Mm. Mm. When you and so you look, I, and I say okay. that and I and I say that because the Daily News uh, uh, when it came out. Uh, with this finding of these 50 or so cases that need to be investigated. Uh, unfortunately, the people who read that didn't realize that that was only the tip of the iceberg. Mm. And that this is a normal practice in the criminal justice system. And so it is not enough just to look at one detective uh, who is using these practices uh, to uh, to sabotage the lives of uh, people who are at least legally innocent, if not morally innocent, uh, and that they are uh, doing this uh, with great disservice. And this is what prompted that Blue Ribbon Commission to mm. include that New York's criminal justice system. They didn't talk about one DA or, or one police officer or... Uh, one judge, it said New York's criminal justice system across the board is infested with racism. And nobody has looked at that. Nobody has looked at that. Uh, and it was interesting because as soon as they issued that report, uh, black selected officials and leading blacks ran into hiding. They, and you don't never hear any of them today. This is Twenty uh, uh, some years later, and you don't hear any of them talk about that report or talk about what changes have been made in the criminal justice system. And so, if that report was not acted upon in 1991, you can imagine what the condition of the criminal justice system is today. Now, and, is that, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And you know, when you piggyback that on top of the fact that it was absolutely necessary for New York to bar me from the courtroom because I was consistently highlighting uh, those instances of racism and racial abuse uh, that is sinking uh, some of our best minds and best persons in our community. Uh, a couple of things. That this when this thing hit the the papers and and it attributed some fifty to this guy 
My mm-hmm. mind went to Chicago, where that uh, head of the detective squad in Chicago was torturing black prisoners into confessing to these to crimes they didn't commit, mm-hmm. and and uh, subsequently being released. Now, Hannity, no, not Hannity, but the uh, Daily Daily uh, Daily Sun. Mm-hmm. Was the the state prosecutor? I'm not going to go into the whole thing because I just remember bits and pieces. The point is that that when you look at a Chicago and you look at a New York and you look at ramparts in Los Angeles, you're not always going to get a complete picture, but there's enough to tell you that something is going on that is not correct in the so-called criminal justice system, not only in mm-hmm. New York, Chicago, and in, in uh, California, but in the entire country. Your mm-hmm. observations, your observations from a broader standpoint than the New York scene. Well, I think one, it's all fueled by money, and it's all fueled by the same thing that fueled the slave trade. Uh, there is a lot of money in black bodies especially if they are chained and are not free to move around. Uh, 400 years ago, that was, the, that was the greatest market that this country saw. And not only uh, was that a great market, but that was what really fueled the uh, stock market. That was what fueled Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at the, uh, the, the, the business terminology and legal terminology of Wall Street, it comes out of the slave trade, you know, stocks, bonds, things mm-hmm. like that. Those those are terms associated with slavery. And mm. that slavery is what really uh, generated uh, the kind of wealth uh, that this country has seen. And the one thing about white people is they don't throw away a winning formula. You mm. know, we try to make it look like they have, but they don't. They're not that stupid mm. to throw away a winning formula. Uh, putting us in chains is a winning formula, and mm. it was it was a winner forty years ago. It's a winner today. It's a lot of money in it, and this is what fuels these prosecutors and police officers and judges to do what they do. And when somebody like me stand up, they're not going to allow me to get in the way of profit. It's pure and simple. And we, on the other hand, try to look the other way and lie to ourselves and, and try to make believe it's something else. No, it's not anything else but what it is. And that is there's a lot of money in in bonds and in stock. I and we to, are both. I want to go to a case unrelated to, you know, to, to this piece, but um, I'm jumping around. I want to go to a case that very few people are aware that you were involved in. And when I say very few, it's, it, it, it's, it's almost as though you're the invisible man. And that's the Central Park Jogger case where there were five of the brothers went to jail. There was a sixth one that went to jail based on some plea bargaining against uh, probation, something. But um, there was the other uh, seventh, that 
in the preliminary trials that you represented. Tell us what did you assess in the case of your your client, and what did you do that freed him from being railroaded in that case? Well, what I obsessed, what, what I observed from the beginning, that's the reason why I, I pushed this whole thing about public affairs programming and things like that, which don't seem to be taking note uh, in our community. But what I saw was is that, A, there was a plant uh, among the attorneys. Uh, one of the attorneys uh, broke rank, and he actually gave all of these admissions, statements, and confessions, if you please, to the news media. And they began to saturate uh, the airways every night mm. with one of these young men. And that then told me uh, that of the dangers of pretrial publicity. And in the in the nineteen fifties, uh the case that put uh uh F. Lee Bailey uh to the top was the case of Dr. Shepherd out in uh Ohio. Mm-hmm. And and if you recall uh uh in that case there was so much pre trial publicity uh that uh, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. I believe the case was called Shepherd versus Ohio, and the, the court had an opportunity to observe uh, what those dangers were and the unlikelihood that anybody could beat the media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, when I saw that, I realized that you can't beat the media, uh, and that the longer you wait, the more influence jurors are that your client's going uh, is guilty. And so I then realized that I had to come up with a strategy that would take me outside the loop and and make the clock started running uh for a speedy trial prosecution at the arraignment and not later. And so when I went into court that day I went in with a planned strategy of immediately getting the clock to start running that day. And and that was contrary to what all the other attorneys did. Uh, when they basically asked for more time, asked for more uh, bail, and, and asked for discovery and all of that, what they were doing was playing right into the, the trap. And so at the end of six months, the state couldn't beat uh, the clock as it relates to my client, but because the other lawyer had ran into the clock into the into the trap and had basically suspended uh, the clock from running, uh, it enabled the state to later on take advantage of that with a uh, with a jury who had already now been uh, affected by pre- negative pretrial publicity uh, to convict these young men despite the fact there was no physical evidence. There was no uh, DNA, and that any statements that they have, may have made were contra- contradictory, and therefore not to be believed in itself. But because the jury had been so uh, affected by all of these instances of pretrial publicity, 
uh, all six of those young men, five of them after trial, the sixth young man who pled guilty, they all went into the criminal justice system. Um, when So when you went in, you asked for a trial. You asked for a trial date. Is that what you're saying? Immediately. I asked for a trial that day, which meant that the clock had to start running that day, and which meant that most lawyers don't ever do that. Uh, but that was the only thing that I had available because most lawyers want to know what kind of case the state has. Uh, but given the fact that the media had done such a tremendous job of of, of saturating uh, pre-trial publicity through the minds of this jury, uh, that was clear to me that I just mm. had to go ahead and roll the dice that day. All right, let me roll. That was, the only, uh, that was the only shot that I had. Okay, let me run this back to you. That given how the media had run with the statements that, not, not the written statement, not these so-called confessions, mm-hmm. but um, the claims of the prosecutor and the police that these guys, these young men, these boys were in it, were, were guilty. You could not, I'm not saying that you had this in mind, the observer could not count on them even going into the contradictions that were in the so-called confessions or timeline, uh-huh. or DNA. Uh-huh. In other words, you follow what I'm saying, that, that yeah. those those things that came out in the trial, the, the DNA that was on the woman's uh, jogging suit was from a boyfriend, uh-huh. according to what I've read. Uh-huh. It wasn't from, it wasn't from, from um, these boys. And, uh-huh. and uh, so there was not going to be any investigative reporting done that would, be critical of the prosecution case anyway. Now, let me go back. The so-called evidence against the five who went to prison and the client that got off were basically the same. Am I correct on that? Uh, pretty much the, the, the same kind of evidence. Well, it really wasn't any evidence. Let's put it like this. The, same kind, of mind, <laughs> the same kind of minds. Uh, that would have been deciding the fate of the five uh, were the same man that would, uh, would have also been deciding the fate of that six. Okay, so when when the six months came up and they didn't have a case against your client, they would not have had a case against the other 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 the other uh, defendants. No, no, because see the problem they had back then was it, it took a long time for them to understand DNA. Because DNA was new, totally. And so the prosecution needed time to really understand DNA uh, himself or herself in order to convince the jury of the uh, salutary effects of DNA. And so all this was time-consuming, and it lent itself to time in a way that, you know, it may not be quite that critical today, because some people have some better understanding of what DNA is. Uh, but back then, this was absolutely uh, the absolute beginning of uh, any kind of understanding of DNA, and it, which meant that the prosecutor had to know more about it, and then they had to have the ability to influence the jurors uh, as to what this DNA meant. 
Now, for the naive person, and I'm I'm naive, I I wasn't at the trial. I wasn't Mm -hmm. at the trial at all. Um, how, How do you, at that time, even though this this is a new scientific whatever whatever how do how how do they how do they come into court and there's no dna on these boys there's no dna of these boys at the scene how do the how how do they prove a case and then stand up today saying that they're guilty well i think one going back to what i just said most people could only speculate about DNA in 1989-1990. That nobody really had a real grasp of it. Although you threw the term out that DNA, people had to grapple with that. And in grappling with that became the difficulties of understanding what effect that DNA really had on the innocence or guilt of these young men. Mm. And so... uh it was it was really a matter of bad timing, so to speak, uh, for these young men, because now they have a jury who otherwise have been told that they are guilty, and the thing that might be able to save them is a, is something that nobody really understands yet. And so, as a result of that, it made it easier then to bring about those convictions for the prosecution to. to uh, not dismiss it in words, but to mm-hmm. downplay its significance. Because if they didn't have a counter from the defense that mm-hmm. really dissected right. and defended these brothers, there then you go. there was no there was no competition. There was and and one of the one of the brothers in the in the film, I can't remember. I think it was Saron. Uh, um, Yusuf Salam, he said that he looked over at his lawyer at one point and looked like the man was asleep. Well, I tell you, during the course of that trial, uh, I wasn't in the trial itself, but I was in the preliminary hearings. Uh, And it got so bad uh, that I would make an objection for other lawyers until somebody finally told Judge Gallagher that it wasn't the lawyer that was making the objection for the client, it was me. And during the course of that trial, Gallagher then admonished me to only speak for my client and nobody else. Okay. You got to give us the scenario for mm-hmm. us to appreciate that. Okay? Mm-hmm. I can okay. appreciate it. And I, only because I heard, I remember you saying this before, but give us mm-hmm. the scenario that that prompted you to say, wait a minute, hold it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, you know, what happens is when you're dealing with pretrial hearings, you have seven lawyers, at least seven lawyers there. Uh, well, you have six lawyers, seven lawyers there, and you have a, a, at least, well, you have seven clients and at least seven lawyers. So, you know, within the space uh, of the well of a courtroom, I mean, it's pretty crowded. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, with all those people within within that well of the courtroom, uh, for a long time, a judge who's sitting far away and on, up on the bench and elevated, you know, he could just be hearing things from going from anywhere. And so, you know, a lot of times because they 
couldn't see me speaking because I was, you know, surrounded by a lot of other folks, that I was making objections for other lawyers who were mm. actually asleep. Damn. And and uh, were were the objections that you raised, uh, what you call sustained? Is that the yeah? Uh, they, they were sustained at the time uh, because saying. Judge Gallagher didn't know I wasn't speaking for my client. Yeah, but the point is that the objection was based on something that had to be sustained if the objection was raised. Absolutely, and if but the lawyer had heard being, it, but it wasn't being raised. It, it wasn't being. Uh, objected to it, and certainly uh, it had been raised by the other side of the prosecution, but it wasn't objected to by the defense, and and it wasn't being objected to by the defense because man and the lawyer were going had gone to sleep, mm. and so you know I was I was on the front row, so I was in a, 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 a nice situation position where I could basically make these objections, and nobody would know that I was the one that was doing it. So it remains for us in the audience who are documentarians to still document your portion of that Central Park Jargon's case mm-hmm. as to mm-hmm. what you saw and experienced. Right. It's still up to us to do that. Absolutely. I'm saying, okay, okay. Uh, telephone number, ladies and gentlemen, is 213-943-3618. We only have a few more minutes with Attorney Alton Maddox. We're talking about current events in New York City. He also gave us an overview of Chokwe Lumumba's run for mayor, Attorney Chokwe Lumumba's run for mayor in Jackson, Mississippi. You're welcome to join in this classroom session, 213-943-3618. I find that in speaking with a lot of college students, there's so many college students who are going to school, when you ask them what they're taking up, they say communications, communications, communications. And um, here and there where I might have heard of someone say they, they want to go to school to become a lawyer, whether it's a male or female, I salute that 1,000%. What are the barriers that no longer, and this is, I'm putting that in quotes, no longer exist for young black men and women to pursue the law career by way of school and then taking the bar? Well, I think a lot of the barriers today are certainly economic. Uh, The fact that you've already spent four years undergraduate, uh, now you're piling on three years of a of a, a graduate uh, uh, school education, and on the other hand, because you had to borrow the money in the first place, also is an indicator uh, that the kind of people that you would attract in your law practice are not the kind of people going to help you pay off your debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you got a real another burden there because if you go through law school and you're borrowing money to go through law school, and then if you come out, the people that you represent are poor people, then you got to cut them a lot of slack. And mm-hmm. in, in the meantime, your creditors are not cutting you the same kind of slack. Right. right. And, and so that becomes a real problem in somebody pursuing a legal education. 
Now, that is a liability to the black community given the history of, quote, justice, the justice system in America. Mm-hmm. It It is a, a real serious liability, and it's one that is, is being uh, acutely noticed today uh, because even in a lot of rural white areas of this country, there's no legal representation. And the American Bar Association and other legal groups are not able to come up with a solution other than to make legal education affordable in the first instance. The reason why it's not affordable because there are a certain class of people who are never going to represent the poor in the first place. They They are going to always have avenues uh of access uh to the Wall Street firms and the uh the big firms that pay a lot of money. Uh and so uh you know we would never uh deal with their talents. I mean uh, Barack Obama uh had not become president of the United States, uh, you know, uh he he would have never been able to be involved in any kind of legal representation of poor people unless mm. you were doing it for a public relations gimmick. Mm. Uh, because there's nothing in his background to indicate that he has ever taken up the banner of poor people uh, in the legal profession. Mm. Telephone number 213-943-3618. We're in our concluding minutes with Attorney Alton Maddox. We're going to a major subject within the black community now addressing it to attorney Alton Maddox. And uh, as we set up for this question, brother Alton in the daily news, they had a, a uh, full page. Uh, I think it was a spread or at least one full page a couple of weeks ago, judge versus NYPD. And they, they took, the judge who's presiding over this stop and frisk uh, trial, they uh, came up with some uh, so-called statistics that would picture her as being against the NYPD. I call it positioning her to be in a defensive mode to uh, say, no, I'm not against the NYPD, and uh, in a couple of weeks I'll show you by finding in NYPD's favor. So there are these kind of articles that appear. Also, last weekend there were, according to the news reports, either 12 or 25 shootings in New York, and naturally that that's being played up and reported in the general media as uh, related to stop and frisk or the lack thereof or the need for stop and frisk. Your observations that you made uh, about five, six months ago on our radio show, the WHCR Harlem Community Radio, regarding the response of the black community to being stopped and frisked. Would you go through that with us and, and give us the uh, the rationale? Well, I think one, and I think this is what is most important, and I don't care what the, you read in the media, uh, it cannot be supported by this well-known fact. There is nothing in the U.S. Constitution 
about stop and frisk. Nothing. Uh, it is permitted by New York State. Uh, it is permitted by the federal court, uh, but it is not sanctioned uh, by the United States Constitution. Uh, and when you get into the trenches, uh, then you begin to realize uh, that stop and frisk has no uh, legal uh, standing. And the one thing that I've said is that uh, New York is structured in such a way that it is governed by the general municipal law. And in the general municipal law, uh, there is a requirement uh, that New York investigate all tortuous claims. And so, therefore, there has to be a unit that has to be established in order uh, to conduct this kind of investigation. And in the city of New York, it comes within the jurisdiction of the New York City Controller's Office. And... <clears throat> If everybody who was stopped and frisked and was able to uh, describe uh, what was exactly happening uh, during that stop and frisk and then required the New York Controller's Office to investigate as it must do, uh, the number of stop and frisks that are taking place in New York City alone would bankrupt the city because it would take an enormous investigation unit to just simply uh, conduct these investigations. And if these investigations are not conducted, uh, then the city of New York has no absolute defense to the stop and frisk in the first, case, in the first place. So uh, what the statute does is automatically defeat uh, the efforts of the New York Police Department uh, to conduct these stop and frisk, and the only thing that is bailing out the New York City Police Department are black people themselves and Latinos who are the victims. Who are the victims who do not go the route of filing a, filing a claim of notice with the controller's, controller's office? Controller's office, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who do not uh, 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 conduct... Uh, uh, who do not file a notice of claim, who then do not require the city to investigate that notice of claim and to either uh, conclude that there is a viable claim of which some money needs to be paid out, or B, there is no uh, viable claim, and yet we still have to pay for the investigation of that claim, and it's still costly, or number three, uh, even if this is a nuisance lawsuit, uh, to go uh, forward, we're going to require attorneys, large number of hours, and uh, it's best to give the claimant the nuisance value of the lawsuit. Now, there, there's a brother, a young brother, who has been at the um, the seminars that Brother Cornelius Ricks puts on uh, mm -hmm. Once a month at the public library, beyond the bench, behind the bench, behind the bench. Mm -hmm. uh, one of these young brothers, I don't have his name. He's a young brother, a young attorney, 
who basically specializes in what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The, um, the stop and frisk, the false arrest, mm-hmm. and uh, that's his specialty. And mm-hmm. uh, so there's there is there is some not some there is substance to what you're saying from the standpoint of that brother's experience. I've not interviewed him yet, but um, the the process would be a person who is stopped and frisked. That person then makes contact with the controller's office and uh, asks them, how do I file a notice of claim based on being stopped and frisked, which is against my constitutional rights or something like that? Uh-huh. They they uh, direct him to the forms. It may be on the Internet, or he goes down to the controller's office. He fills it out. He might have it notarized and that is now a notice of claim against the city of New York for a stop and frisk, and it happened on 132nd Street and Malcolm X Boulevard at 7 p.m. on June 4th and 2013. And um, I noticed that the, the car was a plain closed car, but the license plates were such and such, or there were three guys in there. They were described as this, this, and that, and it happened uh, at that time of day. And I'm filing, blah, blah, blah. That has to be investigated as a result of that person filing that notice of claim with the controller's office. That's what you're saying. Uh, that is correct. And uh, you know, and, and the, the thing I would add to it, uh, you know, I would advise a lot of young lawyers. Uh, to get involved in this uh, field uh, because there's a lot of money to be made. I mean, I can see uh, myself, if I was practicing law, making millions of dollars a year, and it would be pretty easy money. <laughs> I'm laughing because you're sitting right there. Now, here's the pitiful thing. The pitiful thing is that the young guys are stopped and frisked, and they play it off as a joke, but mm-hmm. I, know, I know it is a personal affront to their being. Absolutely. I I don't want to be in that situation. I don't want none of my family to be in that situation. But I know that if they they are saying that you dissed them because you looked at them the wrong way or didn't smile or crossed in front of them when they were crossing the street, that this person putting their hands on them when they didn't do nothing, they ain't been smoking no weed in three weeks, and they're being mm-hmm. searched by somebody on the street, and then they say, um, uh, I've, I've observed these things. Uh, well, sir, you can go. Have a good day, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm looking at this thing, Kate, this is absolutely amazing. Um, absolutely. So it's a personal affront, but although the, 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 the Negro mentality can play it off as a joke, it ain't a joke. Mm-mm. No, it's not. It's it's not a joke at all, and it's amazing to me uh, how our community will be so disorganized uh, uh, to let it uh, continue, especially when the community could get some profit out of it. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, as we conclude, there is the the. Um, the boys and girls retreat your your the camp project that you have. Mm-hmm. 
that's coming up in July, August? Well, actually, you know, there was a series of events that happened. One, uh, at the end of last August, we celebrated our 20th year uh, of Freedom Tree for Boys and Girls. Uh, 20 years earlier, I had indicated uh, that uh, this generation that started this uh, freedom retreat uh, would only have a duration of 20 years. Hmm. And that in the meantime, a younger generation uh, would have to step forward uh, to continue the program. And, uh, And so we said that again last August when we concluded. So we already knew that we were looking for another generation. Now, after that, uh, when Hurricane Sandy came about, uh, Doreen Richardson, who owned the place, uh, was killed in that tragedy. Oh. And as a result of her uh, 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 dying from that tragedy, that put the entire property in probate. So mm. even if a second group had come along uh, mm. to continue it, there would have still been a need to find a place. And that, you know, uh, what became another barrier uh, to freedom retreat for boys and girls. Mm. Unfortunately now, uh, you know, uh, this program has come to an end as successful as it had been uh, for 20 years. And it was the only African Senate sleepaway summer camp in the nation. Uh, for uh, young people, and it attracted uh, people from not only all over the United States, but it also attracted people from foreign countries, uh, young people who came here from other countries uh, to be a part of it. And mm. it proved to be uh, the most successful uh, program that we have witnessed as a community uh, in terms of the socialization of young uh, black children as well as giving them survival skills, uh, which would enable them to get past the police department and the prison industrial complex. Right. And so there had, there was a tremendous amount of success in this program, uh, even though it was only slated for 20 years uh, for my generation. Uh, but as I said before, there was a series of other matters which were actually beyond our uh, uh, hands uh, to deal with because by this property now being in probate, uh, you know, you have to first deal with the whole question of title and who owns it. And then after that, uh, that may not be an interest in terms of the new owners uh, right. to allow part of that program to be a sleepaway summer right. camp for children. All right. Well, beautiful. And uh, I want to thank you, my brother. Okay. I appreciate I appreciate it, and uh, as I said before, uh, you know, I certainly have more to say on this issue uh, later, especially Chuck Wade. We're on our way now over to uh, his uh, campaign headquarters, so to speak, and uh, get to the final results. Here in Mississippi, the polls close at 7 uh, p.m., and so uh, Mississippi is a central time zone, uh, which meant that the polls closed about an hour ago, and okay. so we expect the results uh, before the end of this evening. 
All right, my brother. We will be in contact with you, and may God continue to bless you and your family, and thank you very much for your work and for appearing on this show, my brother. Thank you, Brother Leroy. All right, peace. Ladies and gentlemen, want to thank you all for your participation, and you can share with folks who didn't hear this program tonight that it's archived on the Keys 107 Network. Look for Respect for Life with Brother Leroy, and we are scheduled to be with you, the good Lord willing, this coming Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and that's after Minister Farrakhan's presentation at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on NOI.org, www.noi.org. I advise you to sincerely plan to listen to the time of what must be done right now. It runs up until Friday evening. The uh, current installment and the new installment is on Saturday. So you can get some continuity going, www.noi.org at 7 p.m. this coming Saturday, and at 8 p.m., you switch to blogtalkradio.com forward slash the keys 107, and we'll be on at 8 p.m. this coming Saturday. We're doing a series called Gifted and Talented for All. And at that time, we'll explain exactly what it is, but it relates to each and every person that has a child in their family. May God continue to bless each and every one of you. I want to thank our engineering group, Brother James, Sister Rafika, and Brother Anthony for being on the case enabling this show to go on without a hitch. God bless you all with a wonderful and a fantastic evening. Peace. Keys 107 and the FOI Board of Directors is proud to present The Final Call. The Final Call is the country's unique leading source for news. Founded by the Honorable Louis Farrakhan, National Representative of the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, The Final Call follows in the tradition of Muhammad's speaks with hard-hitting national and international news and coverage of political issues. It is the official communications organ of the Nation of Islam. Founded in the 1930s as the final call to Islam, the newspaper evolved into Muhammad Speaks in the 1960s and boasted a circulation of 900,000 a week with monthly circulation of 2.5 million. Today, the Final Call newspaper serves a readership of diverse economic and educational backgrounds, including circulation in North America, Europe, Africa, and the Caribbean. Read the Final Call newspaper. You can find one of the beautifully bow-tied representatives in your community or read FinalCall.com. Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC, is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face -face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet. Now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. Boom, 
107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cuffed shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, bath accessories, and inspirational music imported from Africa, India, and Asia, as well as jewelry and accessories. Moon 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Don't forget to visit moon107.com.
Unlocking the doors to unlimited possibilities. 